Hello, listeners. Before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Greetings from Austin. This conversation today you'll hear is from Sky King. He is an entrepreneur in the podcasting space in Austin and somebody I've been lucky to get to know over the past several months. I love his vision and just passion for the world. Deeply curious, super interesting, really reflective, and really just optimistic about the possibilities for the future. One thing that's really cool in his story is that his parents thought he'd always be an entrepreneur. So when he decided to go work in the corporate world, they were like, what are you doing? He eventually found his footing, found his way, and he's doing really cool stuff in the podcast scene now. We'll talk about all that and more. Without further ado, let's dive in. This episode is sponsored by CrowdHealth. Stop supporting the broken health insurance system with your hard-earned dollars. Go to joincrowdhealth.com now and experience freedom from health insurance. Right now, you can get your first three months for just $99 per month. That's almost 50% off the normal price and a lot less than a high-deductible healthcare plan. Just go to joincrowdhealth.com and use promo code BOUNDLESS at signup. That's joincrowdhealth.com, promo code BOUNDLESS. Mandatory disclaimer, CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for healthcare. Terms and conditions may apply. Welcome to The Pathless Path. I'm Paul Millard, and in this podcast, we examine the invisible scripts that run our lives and dare to imagine new stories for work and life. Already live from Austin, I am talking with Sky King today. Welcome, Welcome to The you. Pathless Path podcast. Excited to be here. I want to introduce you. Uh, you have done a lot of things. I'm really interested in your path, uh, the journey you've taken from being raised in Hawaii to going to Indiana to the middle of Connecticut to Austin, and the journey you've taken with work. Um, you've done a number of things. You are the founder of a company, Modern Stoa, uh, which I think the coolest way to describe it is you're trying to rethink how we do media advertising mm-hmm. and communicate in the world. For sure. Um, really just inspired by you as a friend. Thank you. I think as someone who is really channeling a very pure optimism into the world and want to explore that as well. But welcome to the podcast. Thanks, bro. I'm inspired by you as well. It's been phenomenal getting to know you. I wanted to start with your name. Okay. So when did you start being known or calling yourself Sky? Uh, so my parents named me that. So like from birth. <laughs> For, I, th- I thought you referred to yourself as some another name. One no. Time. Oh, no. Okay. So, so, okay. Sky is my middle name. Right. Andrew yeah. is my first name. But my parents have never called me Andrew before okay. once. Not even a single time. Yeah. I, I, okay. So I was right. It was Andrew. Yeah. Um, but like literally they've never said that word to me. Like my mom has never looked at me and said Andrew before my entire existence. Do you know why they decided to call you that? Uh, so yeah, Sky King was why Sky. Okay, yeah. so Sky King uh, was a famous pilot TV show. So my dad grew up in the forties, uh, and so he was alive before TV, which is crazy. And so on the radio, they listened to this Sky King the pilot. And the first radio show that became a TV show was Sky King the pilot. Uh, both my parents are pilots. My dad was obsessed with flying. He was colorblind, so he couldn't be in the Air Force. Shout out to Top Gun, but uh, <laughs> but. He was obsessed with the name, so he wanted to keep it. And the last name's King, so 
And the reason they did Andrew in front was because my mom, who comes from the East Coast, was a little bit more concerned that I'd get made fun of or something. So she wanted me to have like a backup plan. <laughs> so Andrew is my backup plan. When you entered the corporate world, did you stick with Sky or 100% you stick with, with Sky? 100% stick with Sky. But I couldn't get my security badge to switch, like my freaking super nerdy badge. And I remember there was two very distinct instances that were pretty funny. So one at orientation when I was sitting there, this kid next to me kept going, Andrew, Andrew, Andrew. And I literally like, cause I've never been called that in my entire life, like didn't respond. And then he tapped me on the shoulder. He's like, Andrew. And I'm like, are you talking to me? He was like, yeah, that's your name. Right. And I'd already introduced myself to him as sky, but he honestly just probably read my badge and was like, I can't remember his name, blah, blah. And I was like, Oh yeah, but no. And then the other time I was sitting with this lady and she was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, I'm so sorry about your name. Like that must've been really embarrassing for you growing up. I was like, wow. What? <laughs> no, it was tight. Like, what are you talking about? Tell me a little bit more about your parents. So I heard this story on another podcast you did with Eric Jorgensen. You're talking about the influence your grandfather had mm -hmm. on uh, your parents mm -hmm. or your father. Mm -hmm. um, an amazing story about returning from a um, sleepaway camp. I, I yeah, believe. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd so, love to hear more there and maybe there's more about your grandfather. For sure. So uh, my dad and my grandfather's relationship was super complex. Like he was a like a really good person, but also like kind of a bad person. But the the story you're referring to is my dad grew up incredibly poor, like so, so poor. So poor that like if he went and made 50 cents when he was like out doing his stuff, uh, just around the neighborhood kind of thing in L.A., uh, he would and he came home with that 50 cents, his parents would take it from him. So he got this like pattern of like, hey, you have to spend everything, which like we can talk about that later, too. But uh, so essentially incredibly poor. They're going on their first vacation of his entire life. Never been on a vacation before. It was a family reunion, about five hour drive away, five hour with five kids in the car. They drive up to this place in Big Bear and <clears throat> and it says whites only. And this is in the like early 50s. And they drive, they'd never even stop. They just drive in, drive out, because my grandfather like wouldn't put up with uh with that kind of stuff. He just thought it was, you know, it was wrong. Like humans are humans. And so but that was my dad didn't understand it at the time because it was like he's never been on a vacation before. All these other people around him get to go on it. And it was like a really important lesson, but it was also like sucked <laughs> for him. I'm sure as a kid, that's uh, annoying, but something that probably sticks with you. Do you I think mean, that's like the one positive story I have for my grandfather, like coming down. Yeah. And how did how did your dad kind of like take that spirit and inject it or even pass it on to you? Yeah. So it, what was interesting is how he passed it forward into society. So he was married to a famous tennis player named Billie Jean King. And he went to her when she was the greatest tennis player in the world and was like, you're being treated like a second class citizen. You have to stand up like you're you're more valuable than this. And so she he helped her and like convinced her to build like women's tennis, help work on Title Nine, um, that women should be paid for their sports. It's not just am amateur athletics, like all of this stuff. So that's been super influential. My dad, my whole life was basically like, he would have been happy with me being like a barista or being like a CEO of some like big corporation as long as I was happy and a good person. The only rule I had as a kid was be a good person. Like my dad never said no to me my entire life. I could do whatever I wanted, but just be a good person. Bring that alive. Like what did what does that actually mean? Like what did it mean to you? What does it mean to you now? It was honestly when at the time when like obviously when I was living with him in high school, it was a little bit harder because it's pretty ambiguous. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like, what does that mean? Uh, and it felt like a lot of pressure, to be honest. And now it's just like, when I simplify it down, like, what does it mean to be a good person? I think it really just means to be honest. Like, you don't have to be a martyr. You don't have to be an incredibly sacrificial. Like, you just have to be honest. And that's also, like, I think a pathway to heaven over hell. Because uh, I believe heaven and hell actually are an earth-based thing. Like, you experience it. Like, if you see somebody... You know, struggling with schizophrenia and alcoholism on the street, like in like freaking out in the middle of the day, like that's hell. And they experienced it. And I think that what the Bible and what all of what the Western canon is, is just like the West's attempt to understand how to live a good life. So it's almost like a stoic philosophy applied to all religion is how I think about it. You've talked to me a bit about 
growing up with your father, he was sort of retired um, yeah. when he had you growing up. Um, talk to me about that and kind of what you saw as like, what were the proper paths in life you thought about taking? Yeah. So when, uh, when I was like four, so we were back and forth between Hawaii and California until I was four. And then when I started school, went full time in Hawaii. I went to kindergarten. I started kindergarten early uh, in California at four and then first grade onward in Hawaii. And then basically by the time I went to Hawaii, my dad was kind of just like cruising. Uh, he It was funny because uh, I was just with him last weekend and he technically like became a real estate agent during that time because like most of our money was in real estate at the time. Uh, we had like numerous houses across the country and then a bunch in Hawaii as well. And then he, I was making a joke to him last week and I was like, did you ever sell a single house in like your five years as a real estate agent? He's like, I think I did. I mostly played bridge on the computer. I was like, I know. Cause I'd come over, I'd walk from school over to hang out and he'd just be playing bridge. So then I'd set up my computer game on like my computer and just be like cruising. Uh, so it's good. He did, I think sell at least a house, which is hilarious. But, but it was like, he always walked, he, I never took the bus. He always picked me up, dropped me off at school. My dad's whole goal in life was to have kids. That was all he cared about. Which like uh, his first wife, like they had an abortion and that like fucked him up. And he actually, he would talk to Time Magazine about it, uh, which is not a good moment in their relationship. But he was like so distraught by it because his whole thing was, I just want to be a father. Um, and so then he, he also had a rule like he'll never say no to me. So, and he told me that. And it was really strange, like moral hazard that really worked out. Because I never asked for anything because I knew he wouldn't say no. And so, like, I just didn't ask for stuff. Like, I can think of like the five things I asked for. It was like, uh, we saw Ellen John on TV. I was like, I want to go to Ellen John. We got to like go hang out with him backstage. It was like sick. I was like, I want to go to China. Send me to China in like fourth grade. Same thing in seventh grade. Like, I only asked for like very big things, but never it was like little stuff. So, I don't know. I'm kind of getting tangential here, I guess. No, well, it kind of, helped you internalize a sense of agency for sure and responsibility. I, I actually grew up somewhat similar with, I think my parents had an intuitive sense that I could kind of self-manage. And mm -hmm. so there were, weren't many rules. Yep. So I sort of just self-regulated. Mm -hmm. And then when I wanted stuff, they would like move the world to like yeah. make it happen. Yeah. No, hundred percent. I think that's probably why being a corporate situation is so bad because <laughs> there's so many rules, dude. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, so you're raised with this autonomy agency, seeing a father taking a different path, and then you disappoint them in the worst way by yeah. getting a impressive, stable corporate job. They were so confused. <laughs> like they're so confused. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, especially because like not only is it like a boring corporate job, but also like I don't take pharmaceutical drugs. Like I never have. Like I've taken Advil sub five times. Like any NSAIDs, like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, like I've taken maybe five times. So I just don't take pharmaceuticals. I was like, what am I doing? Yeah. How, how did you... Well, we can backtrack a little because you ended up in Indiana yep. going to university. And mm -hmm. it, it seems like you had the sense like you needed to kind of experience a different environment, go to the middle of the country, um, get a different perspective. And maybe this was an extension of that. No, for sure it was. So I, uh, my senior year in high school, I got, <clears throat> I was like captain of the tennis team, president of the student body, and I got in trouble for, uh, I got in trouble for uh, hooking up with my president, my uh, secretary and treasurer of the student body. And we had like a Kahlua milkshake. And when you like are in student government and tennis at my high school, you sign this thing that says like, you cannot have like a sip of alcohol. Like you sign that. And so we did. And the reason why like the hooking up is important is because it spread around the whole fucking school. It was really annoying. And then I basically had to step down. And in that moment, when I was like 17, I was kind of like, okay, I need to find a new path. And so Wabash, literally, I was looking at Columbia and Tufts and Wabash just showed up at my house. And I wanted to slow down time. I felt like things were getting really chaotic energetically for me. And so I went to, I went and visited and it was like this all male school in the middle of nowhere where I felt like I could become the best version of myself. And I was like, let's go. What was that sense though? Like you had this inner like drive. I, I sense this deeply in you. Mm -hmm. Like you have this drive. Like I have this energy inside mm -hmm. me. I need to express that I have this like 
higher purpose? Where where does that come from? I, I do. I, at some level, think it's genetic. Like, because that's the thing that, like, when I was growing up, the thing that I wanted to be, even when I was like ten years old, eight years old, when people ask, like, do you want to be an astronaut? Do you want? I was like, no, I want to be an entrepreneur because, like, I saw the way that my dad used business to change the world. Like, to literally, like, the money was just a second thing, but capitalism is this like beautiful mechanism to create value and to like influence society. And, you know, like when, like people in our generation don't know this, but women in my dad's generation are literally treated as like lesser than men. Like it's a complete second class. Yeah. Full second class. And, and what they did is they realized that it was more popular and the markets enjoyed women's tennis more. So they were able to like make more money and got paid really, really well for it. And it was this whole like crazy women's lib movement. And it was sick. And it was cool. Like that you can actually build a better world through capitalism. You find yourself um, in the corporate world. You're in the middle of uh, Connecticut, I think. In yeah, like tw- Indiana, Connecticut, back in- and forth. So you're helping sell oncology <clears throat> drugs, which is definitely worthwhile. But you had a sense that, okay, this is not my path. Yeah. No, it was definitely not my path. And yeah, the oncology stuff was really interesting. So I worked for two different companies during that time. Technically, only worked for one, but they shipped me out to the other one in Danbury, Connecticut. Um, but I learned a lot about... Uh, so I was doing global pricing and global branding. So it was cool because I got to look at the entire healthcare systems across the world and start to see which ones work, which ones don't work. Uh, if you're curious, I think Japan and Germany are probably like two of the best as far as uh, single-payer healthcare, but also private insurance markets. So they, have, they can pay for innovation. Uh, but everybody has healthcare. So there are models that we could do. You know, The United States is pretty wonky about how we think about it. Um, out there and I'm just like I took the Connecticut gig just so I could get out of Indiana and so I could spend three days a week in New York which is where I lived uh, after high school with uh, my godmother and I was just like I can't like be in Indiana anymore like, I was over it at that point so I took it just to escape but in the transit back and forth I got really into podcasts and it was weird because this is right during 26, 2015 before the 2016 election and it was like I was listening, li- living this dichotomy of East Coast establishment, Trump could never win, but talking about him 100% of the time to Midwest, Trump flags everywhere, Trump could win, nobody's talking about him. It's a very interesting dichotomy. Like the left leaning establishment just loves to talk about Trump, like loves it. <laughs> so true. It's so true. They love it. They, they got him elected, which is hilarious, which like goes into the advertising model and whatnot. But so I'm listening to all these different podcasts, everybody from last podcast on the left to Joe Rogan, just like, what is going on? And I felt like the podcasts were actually telling me things that were way more accurate than what I was seeing in the media. And the biggest one being that Trump could win the election. And then when he won, I was like, whoa. And that just sparked this curiosity in me. It was like, how could they have been so wrong? And then I started to read, like I talked to Ryan Holiday, I emailed him. I was like, how did this happen? Like, I want to understand media more. I want to build a company in media helps like solve this problem and he sent me a book list the first book was the brass check listening to podcasts to emailing ryan holiday yeah that's a pretty big leap i mean it was just a cold email like yeah he has the experience of like hacking media from yes american apparel and stuff Mm -hmm. um but what why how do you like what goes through your mind that's like i'm gonna send ryan i've been reading ryan's stuff at that point for like three years he had been I fundamentally believe like and Jack Butcher talks a lot about this, but like you don't like mentorships are all out there. They're all in the books that you have the opportunity to read. And Ryan had like been a very impactful author to me. It's funny because like now we're kind of associates, which is hilarious, but we went to rival high schools. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like I was like a pretty big fan in Hawaii. No. So I went to high school in California. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, And so he went to Granite Bay and I went to Nevada Union High School. Uh. But I just, you know, in college, I really enjoyed his stuff. Like a big reason Caroline and I are dating is because he wrote an article about like 20 things you should do in your 20s. And one of them was being in a relationship that's serious and like all of the benefits you can have from that. And that was like when I decided, I was like, oh, I guess I need, I should probably consider that. And then I met Caroline and now we're getting married. Uh, so weirdly, oh, a lot to Ryan. Like he also was the reason I am started working for Aubrey. 
uh, he so b- back up the okay, first okay. email to Ryan. Yeah. When's the first time you emailed Ryan, and what was going through your mind when you're? It was like, twenty. Emailing, it was like twenty sixteen. I think were you emailing other people at the time. No, just Ryan. Well, if, here's the thing about Ryan, though. He will respond to every person's email yeah. he gets. I think I've gotten a reply from him. Yeah, he responds well. to everyone's. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's not like I did anything special to get that response, but I was just like, okay, this guy has been impactful in his writing and I just needed like an answer because I was just like so fed up at my work and I saw this like this contradiction in the universe and there's like Adam Robinson quote and it's basically like um, there's nothing wrong in the world it's your model that's wrong with the world like everything in the world makes sense when something doesn't make sense it's not the world not making sense it's your model and it just I had this like like kind of like aha moment where I was like oh shit like all of this comes down to the monetization system of media. And this is the outcome that we got because the customers are not the people receiving it. The customers are the brands and the advertisers. So in 2016, you sort of had this idea like this needs to be changed. But it seems like you felt that with like the force of God. It was, it was, it was the quake moment for me. It was like, I've, I've always known I want to be an entrepreneur. I always want to do something that could add value. And it finally felt like I was at a place where like, oh, this is the thing I can do. It was so, it was something that nobody else is saying or seeing and was so clear to me. Well, and I think this is powerful too, because I, I, I get emails from people sometimes and they ask you questions. They can, can you do this for me? I imagine what Ryan saw in that email was like, oh, wow, this person's engaged, connected to this vision. And he's like, going going mm-hmm. somewhere so it's like those people are so much fun to help yeah yeah and like he, he continued to help me in weird ways so then like two years later when i was like really ready to leave i emailed him again and i was basically like i'm in a pharma company i know media is the path like i went through this whole book thing obsessed with the brass check like totally media pilled now advertising pilled and i'm just like what what's going on and he was like you should go work for gary v and I just, it was right when Conspiracy was coming out, which yeah. is one of my favorite books of his. And my friend Aristo, he, uh, he wrote, he did the research for it and it was sick. But uh, I was like, Gary V's the worst. Like, what are you talking <laughs> about? I just watched you interview. Like, I literally just watched him interview you by talking the entire time when I wanted to hear about from you about Conspiracy. Like, it was an awful interview. And he was basically like, check him out. And then that next podcast was Aubrey on doing his book. And then... Aubrey basically said on that podcast, my mom lost a Billie Jean King at Wimbledon in the semifinals. And I was like, oh, fuck. Like a sign from... Yeah, for sure. I literally called Billie immediately. Do you you know who this woman is? She's like, oh, yeah. Have you met her? Like, is she doing okay? I was like, I think I want to go work for your son. Like, can you call her? She's like, find her number. I'm like, okay. So I just like literally go on Google, reverse, like do all those sketchy like search (laughs) number searches to find her she's like had two last names and she was that like go back find seven numbers my dad being the saint he is calls all seven of them because i wasn't gonna make billy until he finds the right one and him and kathy were friends like back in the 70s like we're homies so he's like kathy it's larry king uh billy would love to talk to you is that cool because it was gonna have a lot more clout coming from her and then uh so then i finally find the right number my dad and her catch up send it to billy they catch up and then that gets me an interview with aubrey and i'm staying in this apartment complex. Oh no way! Yeah, yeah, yeah. With my like one of my best friends, Dan, uh, who you should meet next week. He's coming into town for consensus. He's a sick, dude. And uh, as I'm coming down to interview, I still technically work the big farmer job, but you'll love this. So, <clears throat> two and a half years into the big farmer job, I was trying to figure out how to leave. Dan had just gotten like furloughed essentially, so then he left to go. He was going to go get his MBA at Cornell, but he's doing crypto stuff in between. And I was like, but he got like six months severance. And I was like, how do I do that? So I found, I knew that it was kind of like an age time period where we were trying to get rid of a lot of older people. So I put myself into a position that was exclusively middle management old people because I knew that they would across the board fire all those people. And so that happened in February of 2018. And I'm like, yes, I'm about to get like seven months severance. I can go like be a podcaster, do what I want. Bet your pay was too low to get so laid off, right? Dude, they basically looked at it and they're like, look, you are young. We want you to stay. Just find a job within the company. No pressure. We won't technically like fire you. 
to like start that time period. Like you have as much time as you want. Just find a new job in the company. You're like, no, lay me off. I was like, no. And my boss at the time was technically in Austria. So then I said, fuck it. And I became big head from Silicon Valley. I literally (laughs) was traveling everywhere, hanging out, having a great time. I had no responsibility or job from February. And then, uh, and I, during this time, I'm like talking to my boss's boss and I'm like, Hey, could I work remotely potentially? Like my girlfriend just moved to Nashville. Like, can I just work remotely? She's like, no, you have to be here. I'm like, I'm, and I would barely be in the office. I go in the office like two days a week. I was like, okay, whatever. This is ridiculous. And I just had nothing to do. And my boss at the time, or my the person who was my boss before the whole firing thing like went down, she kind of like started to take focus on me again, have me do stuff. And I was like, oh, this is a problem. And I was like, Monica, I'm looking for other stuff. I think I'm, I tried to become a Schwartzman fellow like in China, didn't get in. And then the Aubrey thing happened. And so I'm like, I'm here during the work week interviewing with Aubrey and I'm getting emails from my boss like, Hey Scott, can we meet? Like we should probably connect. And I knew what was going to happen. And they literally actually let me go. And like, I'm so grateful for my like boss's boss for this, but she literally knowing I had another job with Aubrey, she knew that completely on the table, let me go. She did it. She intensely canceled our meeting on July 6th so that we could meet on July 7th, which means I was there for three years on the day. Which added another month of severance. So I ended up getting seven months severance. That's my biggest regret from the corporate world. I never got laid off. You got to find a way. I was, bro. Too, I was too. I was too skilled. You got to find I was a way. Too bro. good at my job. It's funny because when I tell my friends that I was like fired, they're like, "Yeah, but you weren't. You literally chose to slowly <laughs> like." I was like, "No, but I technically was. Like, I got paid severance. It was sick." Uh, you get a job with Aubrey. Um, Aubrey Marcus, a podcaster, um, has done a bunch of stuff. He started on it. Um, I think with Joe Rogan. Yeah, they right? co-founded on it um, together. Sold it by now, though. But yeah, um, they had a presence down here in Austin. You came and were pretty much just willing to do anything. Yes. Um, yeah. You just like what was your goal? Like you just I want to get somewhere in the podcast world. I don't care. I'm just like it's all about learning at this point. Like the the upstream actual goal and how I felt emotionally about it was I wanted to live an intentional life that felt like an adventure. Mm. So like a part of that was like, I'm going to quit my big boy job, be fired, but like very intentionally. And I'm going to go send it on whatever I can find. Like I know there's these moments and Seth Godin calls it salta mortale, the leap of faith, leap of death, but you just have to go. You just have to, you, you get to that point where you're like, I'm going for it. I'm done. And that's, that's what that moment was for me. And so I, I meet with him and I'm like, yo dude, like you're, you could do so much better marketing wise. Like you don't have anybody doing this, 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 and this. And he was like, you'd be interested in that. And I'm like, yeah, hundred percent. Like I could crush that. And he's like, well, I have a job for you right now. You can go work the front desk at the on gym. And I was like, and he's like, maybe it'll work out. And I was like, cool. So yeah, I went from like super travel, you know, big company to making smoothies at a gym. But finally your parents are probably my parents totally made you. sense. They had no <laughs> curious. They were like, okay, this one makes sense. So you have the opposite challenge a lot yeah. of people have, yeah. which is that like when most people are taking that leap, their parents are like, what are you doing? How yeah. can you give up the benefits? That's of what the Caroline's parents are package? like. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, my parents are like, this one finally makes sense. Finally, Sky yeah. is... Uh, and they were, when they came and visited me, they're so happy. They're happy to see me happy. Like even again, I was making $13 an hour and they were just like stoked. They just they saw loved the Austin. They you. saw the energy. They saw the people. They saw the environment. Like we had the shitty apartment, and like, but they loved Austin. They hated Indiana. <laughs> like, what are you doing? So it was, and honestly, it was all. It had nothing to do with the set or the setting. They could just tell based off of how I was being in it, and it just felt like way better. Yeah, and in part of that time, you had this idea that like you wanted to build this different way of monetizing that's podcasts. from 2016 like i wrote the idea in an email to to and this is using web3 like using crypto yes yeah. this is from 2016 like this is 2016 2017 and we're sitting here in 2022 and you've yeah. sort of done this i've like yeah for how, sure it's kind in of, you you said in another podcast like it was kind of shocking to realize you actually did it yeah and i think this is an interesting thing about paths we don't realize we're really on our way in the midst of it until we're actually looking back. Yeah, this is a tight, uh, potentially controversial, but there's one thing like I have this consistent thing where I get so zoned in on what I'm doing that I'm like not appreciating everything that's going around me. And I will say like marijuana is a powerful tool to make you realize like, oh, wait, this all just happened. Like to feel gratitude. 
Yeah. Like it, you have, and it's just like an, you can also use like a sauna or an ice bath, but you need something that'll change your state to foster awareness to be like, oh, I was on autopilot for a second. I wasn't aware because like we just have as humans like this ability to just like go deep and focus on very specific things. And that's kind of can be a tragedy if you aren't like constantly being grateful for it, constantly coming back to the awareness of it. Yeah. Have you gotten better at that? No. Way better. Like a thousand times better. Yeah. Yeah, it's been fantastic to be honest. Yeah, we don't have to go too deep into the story, but basically, like you worked with Aubrey, you helped him scale his podcast, you slowly just started helping other people. I think the interesting thing there is you were sort of just being yourself, I Mm -hmm. think. Like you're very natural when you're helping people and like excited about other people who are doing cool stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you been aware of? Like, oh, that's how I like to show up. Here's how I can actually inject that with what I'm building. No, like you just saying that just now, honestly, like it all just made sense to me completely. <laughs> so it was a revelation for me. But no, it's totally, it literally was just like, oh, how can I be helpful? And I enjoy that. Yeah. Like you add value and you're helpful. And, you know, these people had big audiences, big missions, and they weren't making any money. And it was like, oh, I could probably figure that out. I mean, this has been a realization for me, like on my path. I only realize now, looking back on my previous path, I wasn't able to do those things. Mm. I get so pumped when I'm able to like help people and engage with people yeah. and like help them navigate their paths or make sense of what they're good at. Um, and it just like wasn't that valued in my yeah. previous environments. And now I can just spend a lot more of my like personal time doing that for fun. Yeah, dude. I think that's like why I would never be good politically in any way because when I'm helping people, like I have no concept of retribution and the idea that like it would ever be like a quid pro quo like sullies it for me like completely yeah you know what i mean it's like like, it makes it gross so like there are people out there who think about it that way who like it's not just about like the joy of helping it's like okay cool now you owe me something which is like crazy where does that come from in you like you have this deep desire to like help people who yeah. are excited and passionate. Like, where does that come from? I think it, I think it's from my dad for sure. Cause like, again, be a good person. I think honesty is huge, but I think helping people is a part of that as well. Yeah. And he was someone who always had time to help anybody that asked, like always had time, whether it was, you know, his crazy brother who's like literally schizophrenic or someone who had wronged him multiple times. Like he always had time to help them. Yeah. Is there a sense of like helping underdogs? Mm. I definitely am a big fan of underdogs for sure. 100%. When you think of like people you've helped, is there any one person that stands out or someone you're just like super excited about? To be honest, like my initial reaction to that is I'm not done yet. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's awesome. Like I have have my eyes set on some, let's say that. But no no one currently stands out. I don't, again, I haven't reflected on this too often. When I was uh, in eighth grade, I got this award. And it, the only reason I can bring this up is because it's an award that's not often given out uh, at my school. It was like weirdly for some reason, only when like somebody demands it, like they give it out. And it was called the Peace Prize. And I got it because there is a, a mentally handicapped student on campus who for some reason, like just kept attacking me, like physically attacking me. And I instead of like being offended or hurt by it, decided like, oh, okay, cool. Like tried to basically like help him through that experience as he was literally hitting me. And that was probably one that stands out a lot because, you know, I had nothing to gain in any way from that. But it was something that when it was then recognized, I kind of like became aware of like, oh, that was probably not normal behavior from someone being attacked. Let's let's go into childhood more. You said this a few times about like you, you didn't know like what normal was. Yeah. Um, what was it like to like grow up as Sky? It was pretty sick. Like being in, in Hawaii was so fun. Like super tight crew of friends. Uh, adventure often like always in the ocean, always in the jungle, always skateboarding didn't wear shoes like legitimately didn't wear shoes until i moved to california unless i was skateboarding at a skate park like i would skateboard without shoes around my house but only at a skate park every time i went to a movie theater which was an hour away my dad had to stop by walmart and buy new shoes (laughs) because i didn't have them like in my school you weren't allowed to wear shoes so it was like a weird thing but 
but yeah, it was super fun. You know, there's, there's like little interjections of tragedy as, as life happens. Uh, one of my closest friends OD'd on Oxycontin when we were 13. That was a huge bummer. Um, I think that's probably why I don't take pharmaceutical drugs, to be honest, very often. And, but no, like I grew up in a family that was very active. My dad really didn't work the majority of my life. We, I went to every single state in the United States by the time I was thinking like 13. Uh, at 13, we did a three month Alaskan road trip. Like, yeah, it was so sick. Like we just took a motorhome all the way up to the dark horse, Alaska jumped in the freezing water my mom and i stayed in for 10 minutes joined the polar bear club saw so many like moose and bears and just crazy things and wolves uh and i had luckily like grew up very blessed that my parents had the ability to do that and like really my whole childhood focus was just like spending time in like a high quality environment with my family doing fun stuff you had a lot of asian influences definitely so and this is one thing that's really strange as i've thought about this more because my sister is not like that like she currently now just moved to thailand two days ago but she's not like that at all so i do wonder like how much of this is genetic versus like nature nurture but growing in hawaii like all of my teachers were japanese uh i became like just mentors were chinese i just got really into all things from food to art to history to weapons like anything that was some sort of like chinese descendant was just like super fascinating to me absolutely obsessed and it felt very natural for me as well and then when we were moving from hawaii back to california i was pretty distraught i was super bummed and so during that like i think my parents wanted to make me feel better i was like i really want to go to china i want to go to china so bad and i am 10 years old and then they're like <laughs> yeah. where did that idea come from I did. It's just. I think it was because I just. That was what I was gravitating towards, and like uh, my mom, who at the time when she was in Hawaii, she got very like stir crazy, and so she became a nurse. She was like, "I need something to do," and so she went to nursing school. And so during her nursing school program, she had to like seek after these uh, different patients. It was like kind of something you do in the community. And one of them was this old Chinese dude, who he and i became super close and he like got me subscriptions to science magazine and we would just hang out and talk and eat food and eat lychee and like all this stuff and he would just describe all and i just like was like that sounds so cool and all i could think about was just imagining myself as like a little boy in china running around like that was just this thing i was obsessed with and so i was like can we do this my dad's really good bridge friend was going to be leading a tour this is 10 years old. 10 years old. was going to be leading a 28-day tour in China. And I was like, we have to, can we go? So we, we took the whole family, all four of us went. And the first night we got there, we hadn't you know slept the entire time. And I'm like, dad, let's go walk around. It's like three in the morning. It's in Beijing, like just completely like dark. And he was like, okay. And so we walked around until the sun rose. Just because I want to see the city. I want to experience it. And what was crazy was at the time, it was a little bit, it was like, this is 2001. So it's like pre 2008 Olympics, which for China was like huge. So it's yeah. still coming up pretty aggressively. Like people were sleeping on the streets, not homeless people, like people who were like in nice clothes and they're sleeping on bikes. And I remember that morning seeing somebody who's asleep on his bike and the bike was standing up. And I was like, that is impressive <laughs> because like they, every time you put a bike in, like somebody else could just take it at that time. Right. So there wasn't like an, a pure ownership of like the, the private property stuff hadn't come as far along. So, yeah. Yeah. And you had a sense of sort of being at home. Then. At home. In a, like, I was so bummed when we were leaving versus like the rest of my family who are good sports, love to travel. But 10 days in, they're like, get me the fuck out of this place. Typical Westerner looking for McDonald's. Literally to a T. My, my like... There was one dinner that was a super sick hot pot dinner that I was so into. And my sister, who had only eaten white rice for 10 days, was like, I need something else. My dad's like, okay, we'll go find you McDonald's or it was KFC. We'll, there's a KFC yeah. in this city we heard. We'll go find you. I don't even remember the city. It wasn't a major city. That was like kind of like a second tier city. And they're like, we'll go find you KFC. And they like get on this rickshaw and the rickshaw driver turns around and he has no teeth. And my sister starts crying and like freaking out. And... Meanwhile, I'm like sitting there doing, enjoying the most delicious hot pot. And then my mom and I got massages after. It was like such a sick day. And they're like on this hour-long journey that was like traumatic for Katie to find KFC, which I would never eat anyway. Like, yeah. Obsessed. That was so good. It just felt... It, yeah, I just... 
everything about it, whether, you know, there were, there were definitely a little bit of hard stuff. So when we got into more rural areas, there were a lot of little boys who had been maimed, uh, either limbs cut off or eyesight taken. And our uh, Chinese tour guide told us that sometimes in the families there, they do that because tourists will give them more money if they're maimed. And that was like a brutal thing to experience because there's kids my own age being in that state. And that gave me like a huge gratitude for the West and for what I grew up in. But like outside of like literally that specific moment, it was just nothing but but ecstasy and excitement for me. We went down the Yangtze River, like one of the last people going down before it was uh, dammed and flooded. And we watched these. We did like a three day boat tour down it. And we watched these uh, old women moving their houses brick by brick because their housing area was going to be flooded. Like an 80 year old woman just passing bricks down into a wheelbarrow to move her house into a higher location. Wow. Like the uh, resiliency of that culture is next level. You've seen everything anywhere all at once. Everything everywhere all at once. It, screw it up. <laughs> the title's you've, hard. You've seen it three times. Three times, yeah. Um, what does that movie mean to you? Yeah, so we... So right now there's a really big trend in media and I think <clears throat> trends in media are... It's the artist trying to explain subconsciously, consciously the the perils of the culture now. What's what is going on under the under the hood now? And one trend that's been very prevalent in media, popular media today, is schizophrenia and multiverse. And my theory, my prevailing theory on why that's been really popular is because never before. So people talk a lot about technology, 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 technology. We now have all of this stuff going on. Like we are evolving at a very fast pace. But one of the things that we don't talk about right now is there are unlimited options. Yeah. For every single person now who has a smartphone, you can swipe right, swipe left for who you want to have sex with, for what you want to eat. Like we can be, you know, we're we're right now in the center of Texas and we're above a yakitori place like a japanese like skewer spot and sushi spot like that has never existed before like eight years ago like we can get korean food we can get indian food we can get unlimited options to anything we want right now and that's created a sickness because when you have live in a place of unlimited options the two prevalent emotions are anxiety and regret fomo Again, super popular in our culture, this idea that like everyone's FOMOing because they're all they're seeing is all the lives they could have lived and they chose the wrong path. And so th- what this movie to me was just like a put that concept on steroids and just exploded it in like a absurdist manner. But it also had like a very powerful moral lesson to it. And I think that lesson is that the only antidote to that sickness, to that optionality, to that schizophrenia to that being in multiple places at multiple times is commitment to the moment. And it was just like this beautiful realization that, you know, like through her husband, through her daughter, that like there's a scene uh, with her husband, spoiler for sure, when he, when they ended up not dating and she becomes the famous actress and he's like, they're other smoking a cigarette and she had just like kissed him again. And he was like heartbroken over that. And he basically says like, in another world, I would have loved to be fixing uh, a laundromat and doing taxes with you. And just like his ability to commit to every like yeah. version of them, like literally made me cry. Because like in my mind, I can get caught up in all the things I should be doing. And Caroline to me is very much a balancing act of this like fostering presence, like this like purity of just like being committed to the moment. And yeah, so that movie like definitely sent me down the loop. Yeah, in some ways, it's one of the bravest things you can do in today's world. It's hundred percent the bravest thing. Yeah, I think I experienced this by getting married and committed mm-hmm. um, to someone. It just like you're just in a direction. Mm-hmm. You're picking a path, and by picking a path, you're choosing not to pick the other path. Yes, um, which is incredibly hard. And I think a lot of what I talk about in the podcast is really, um, I think, the default script is basically leading people to be um, unhappy. Yeah. And like media is playing a role in this, right? Mm -hmm. It does drive this sort of schizophrenia where you're playing all these identities. Even work is like this. We go to work 
and we're following rules and order. And then we do all this like fun and entertainment and leisure and explore your own life in your own time. Mm-hmm. Um, and managing those two identities causes it caused me a lot of anxiety for sure. And now like I don't have the clear path. I don't have the clear title to tell anyone, but I'm able to actually just show up as myself mm-hmm. in a way that is a lot easier to be. Yeah. Um, and is really hard to explain to other people. And it, it seems like you've sort of done a similar thing with like your path where it's, you just sort of became more of yourself over time. It is. It, I think it is the thing that makes life kind of worth living though, you know, like self-realization, like it's something that Foster has been debating forever. And we just built a strange system that didn't really work for that, but I think it's superhuman, you know? So I love like what you're doing. And I think it's like, like, I think it could be viewed as reactionary to the default path, but actually, I think that you're uncovering the true default path. Like, this is what we were meant to be. Yeah. And I mean, my path is basically a reaction at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then I realized I was naive and c- cynical. Yeah. I was rejecting the path by doing like an anti path. Yeah. But then it was really just a way to, for me to get space and then transcend that and actually be like, oh, I can show up as myself in the world. And I'm actually like, I think being in Austin now has been really unique for me in that I'm giving myself permission. Oh, I can be ambitious as long as it's aligned with like the things I actually care about. For sure. And as I lean into that, I'm sort of just realizing, oh, I still feel okay. Like even doing this podcast, like this is, this would have been so scary for me a year ago. Yeah. Um, Because I was so afraid of like ending up in a suit again. Yeah. In an office building. Yeah. And it takes you a while to realize, oh, I'm going to be okay. I've been doing this yeah. for five years. I'm safe. Yeah. Um, I can actually just make decisions. Um, so learning that agency is like so hard. It's so hard, dude. Like when I, like one of my uh, good friends from college, he would always give me shit because he's like, what are you doing working at that company? He's like, and he'd be like, you're going to go live in a suburb in Carmel, Indiana for the rest of your life and kill yourself. <laughs> like he would tell me that all the time. And I started to believe it like, oh my God, like I'm going to get in the trap. You know what I mean? Like, and then I had, then it took a long, even like after like two years of working with Aubrey. And then like when I started my own company, like it literally took until probably this year. We're like, yeah, oh, wait, I'm not going to, that's not going to be my path. Like yeah. I'm good. Like I'm just going to do what I want. And like what I want will be like, I will work 80 hours a week again at some point. Guaranteed. And it's going to be sick though. Yeah. It'll be like a very healthy way. It's just because like, that's like, I am on a mission to do something. And sometimes you got to grind it out of it, but it's going to be a hundred percent in alignment. And Austin like is such a great place to realize that because there's so many people here who are living the lives they want to live. Well, I think just being physically around ambitious people who also just seem to be showing up as themselves. (laughs) I love the challenge you have is like, one of the greatest things you can do as an American citizen is basically establish a uh, yeah. LLC. Yeah. Um, I love that because I've just been seeing like in my own catching up with how I'm actually showing up in the world. Like it's self-employed. I can like make all these decisions. Yep. Um, and just having this ownership mindset is so powerful. Yeah. In even just technically from like a tax perspective, it puts you in the game. Like we're a part of a game, like everything's a game and you're actually not even a player in the game until you get that 15 to 30% back because you can't use those resources as you want. Yeah. And I also like, I think I've been influenced by you. You've said like hiring somebody is like a great responsibility. And Mm -hmm. I think you went through your own journey of Mm -hmm. figuring out, Oh, I have people I, that work for me, I need to actually make money to pay them. Yeah. Um, that's something I've been thinking a lot about. I've done five years extremely solo. Yeah. Um, and I think there is a upside of like, oh, I'm going to pay some money. That's just going to make me more responsible and commit and be bolder. It, it definitely can. And it, it creates like, you know, not to Spider-Man it, but great power comes great or great response. Great power comes great responsibility. And that's what it felt like, you know, when I started building out a kind of a large team, we got up to seven people last year and I was just, okay, cool. How do we leverage, you know, this group think to make this a reality? You know what I mean? It puts the pressure on for sure. And pressure is a privilege, I think for sure. So what is the thing you are uniquely positioned 
to serve people with or offer? Like, I know this is a question you think a lot about. Mm-hmm. You've been influenced by people like Bucky Fuller. Um, is that a question you think about a lot? Yeah, 100%. And it's because like taking modern Stoa into what I want Stoa to become has been a very ambiguous process and it's like has not moved as fast as I've wanted it to. So I've always had to be reminded by, and I just see it in the world so much and it is back to the aha moment we were talking about earlier. It's like, it is so clear to me that the business model of media is not serving us and has actually created a lot of the tension and issues that we have today. And it's because it's like, it's very clear. It's just, it's just an inefficient business model. Like it's just actually wrong. There's there's some arbitrary rules, right? Like the tax incentives from way back when just basically created as a, you just, they just subsidize. Like if, yeah, if you start to think about it, like, yeah. So this guy, Henry Wace, the founder of uh, Henry Luce, the founder of time fortune and life magazine he went to fdr and basically got tax got advertising and marketing to be something that was pre-tax instead of post-tax revenue so it subsidized the entire industry and then you if you think about that from an environmental perspective like most of the like we could have lived in the world with 10,000 100,000 less things because there's so many things that just use uh funding externally to then just pump advertising to become something in the world uber uh, <laughs> but uh but like that's like a very common playbook historically we would just have like ten thousand less things like plastic chemicals all this stuff because they just made their way through having a ton of money to be able to advertise and then create false demand yeah it's pretty crazy i think uber's lost something like an insane tens or hundreds of billions of dollars and yeah Still has not made a profit. Yeah, it just bleeds, um, bro. And have you looked into like what happens in China with media? Because they have they have some interesting models around like serialization of content and other things because they don't have as much advertising. Yeah, so China actually was the the proof of concept for me that made me realize with Himalaya, like I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, XI Himalaya. But uh, it made me realize like, oh shit, because in in 2019, the podcasting market in the U.S. did $700 million in revenue. So not even a billion dollars. In 2019, the podcasting market in China did $5.2 billion. No advertisement. It was all through this like Twitch-style gamification. Yeah. And that's when I was like, oh, wow. There's a completely different model that will work better. Like, I'm not... this. Like, I always find... Like the beauty of capitalism is when you can do something that's morally, ethically good for the world you want to see and make money because it just makes more sense. Like advertising is literally inefficient because they're basically like even with the highest CPMs, which podcasting has the highest CPM, so cost per thousand views, they value your attention for a minute at 0.02 cents. Like your most valuable asset, your sacred resource of attention is being given up for less than a penny for a fifth of a penny and it's because we don't want to pay five dollars and 90 cents a month for a subscription because we think we're getting it for free but really like we are not we're giving away our most valuable resource focused time what's your like roadmap for working on this i know so you you sort of built a podcast advertising company Mm -hmm. right and this is because you want to serve podcasters Mm -hmm first and you can collect the data to figure out what works but this is sort of step one of a longer term plan of like getting us off this system so yeah it was step i called it steps in my uh, master plan it's step 0.0 so build an agency that helps podcasters monetize their platform i focus on podcasters because most people focus on the advertiser as the client i think of myself as the moat between the podcaster and the brand uh, if the if the brand tries to influence the content of the podcast, which happens constantly, I don't even tell the podcaster. I just tell them to fuck off and find a new brand. Um, that can this is this is one thing that people need to realize. All of the media you consume is influenced by the customers. Always products are always influenced by the customers. The thing is, you're not the consumer is not the customer of the media. The brands are that's who pays for it, but they are the people who have say and influence into it. I went into podcasting because. 
the reason it was more accurate in the Trump election was because there's less, less influence of advertising. Because Joe Rogan, who gets the same amount of views as CNN, has three people working for him. CNN has hundreds of people, thousands of people. Washington Post loses a title sponsor. You know, Bezos can probably fund it for a bit, but they have to fire thousands of people. Podcasts have high leverage. You know, there's it's just us here, right here. And this could go to, you know, just as many people as whatever your mom's watching on TV. The same amount of people could get hit and they'd actually be paying more attention probably. Like it's, it's, in, it's insane. And there's just more space for nuance. And like, so like, I mean, this is, people are actually craving this. Mm-hmm. If you look at the subscriber numbers of like New York Times and Washington Post, it's kind of bizarre. Mm-hmm. The average subscriber is like over 65. That's crazy. Um, but we sort of just see the fact that these are more important because historically they have been more important. Um, but the reality on the ground is totally different. It's crazy because the New York Times did a whole campaign like calling themselves truth. Like you can go Google it and look like New York Times truth campaign. They just did like associated with truth and they built this identity as if this like institutional thing that must be here that's so important that's associated with truth. And dude, like there's a book called The Gray Lady Winked. It's insane. Have you have you heard of it or read it? I haven't heard of it. <laughs> Bro, it just goes through all of the horrible things the New York Times has done, starting with backing Hitler. Yeah. Like saying that Poland invaded Germany, even though it was like well known it didn't, but they literally wrote that to justify Hitler like going in. Like it's nuts. And like we think of this thing as this beacon of of light when really it's just consistently been a private corporation that the Salzburgers like use to their own benefit. Like I think people see the the TV show Succession and they think Fox, but no, it's about the New York Times. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, it's all the media institutions. Yeah. I mean, if you go back at like yellow jur- journalism, William yeah. Randolph Hearst, mm-hmm. Hearst it like it wasn't this noble highbrow stuff. Like, no. I think William Randolph Hearst, Hearst literally started like a war. Tried to. Paper. He tried to start a war with Mexico. Um, yeah. Yeah. He literally, he had 50 different newspapers across the country. He had a bunch of land on the California-Mexico border on the Mexico side and said, let me see if I can get that to become California. And he wrote in every single one of his newspapers at the front page, US and then tiny font might be and then big font at war with Mexico. <laughs> So when you see it from like a stand, it just says U.S. at war with Mexico. Yeah. And he put the like, it's insane just because he wanted to like have his land be worth more money, maybe. Yeah. And that's like, that's somewhat like, again, like he built that at least. Like, I think it's worse with the ad. Like, again, this a lot of this, like my knowledge from this comes from a book called The Brass Check that Ryan had recommended I read. His marketing agency was called The Brass Check. And then uh, when he released his most recent book, like two years ago, so he's had three more books since then, but. Uh, I had him sign my the brass check, and he just like he wrote like use this book for good. It's like let's go. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, and so what what's the next step for you and what you're building? Yeah. So okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I so with Stoa now. So I did a proof of concept for Stoa in November. Essentially, I had this idea. So there's ways we can monetize similar to how Himalaya does it. This like Twitch style like monetization, but I want to really make content a skill game. So if the first business model of media was state run slash church, second was subscription, third was advertising. I think there's a gamified model that actually rewards people who consume content for their time. So you actually start to make it more synergistic with the consumer and the creator, both being kind of like using their time to like get a reward financially. So I built this concept I call meme farming. And essentially imagine if you let's just use Joe Rogan because like people know him, whether you like him or not, but there's this famous moment where Elon Musk spoke spoke to Blunt on Joe yeah. Rogan's podcast. So like if you were and that was during when it was live streamed. So like if you were actually there and you could have clipped that moment and like bid on it and then minted it as an NFT and actually owned that moment of content, like that would be worth so much money today. And there are moments that happen on every podcast that that does. And so like I did that for my own podcast, like 50 listeners and we, I meme farmed it myself. I had an artist create unique art for every single like clip within it. And then we launched that as like the first ever like web three native podcast where it was actually on the blockchain, like full on hundred percent minted. I minted over a gigabyte of data onto it. And and it worked. Like the response was like great. It was crazy. Like it just absolutely crushed. And so that was kind of a proof of concept. So what we're building with Stoa, first iteration MVP is basically a platform that 
allows podcasters to just go live and allows fans just to go in and mint the content as NFTs, paying paying a fee. And what this really does, it's super important, is it takes a prostitutional business model and turns it completely synergistic. So where the podcaster and the creator both are looking the same way. They both want the podcast to grow. And this comes from deep market research in podcasting and realizing that one of the biggest issues for podcasters is no Nate, uh, native discoverability feature. And so we're going to use these memes to actually help the medium become more shareable. Because right now, in order to grow a podcast, you just have to go off platform. So we're going to build a platform. So like we're hitting it from a bunch of different angles of like what podcasters need monetarily and growth-wise. So what a, what a podcast look like in 10 years? Okay. Uh, podcasts in 10 years are conversations in the metaverse, bro. Like it's all, I think it's going to be in VR, like a hundred percent. I've started like in, in like a decentralized monetization aspect where like you are almost playing a game. Like you are going to be, instead of like us speaking here, we're going to be sitting at the edge of the universe. And we just finished a quest together and we are reflecting on that moment. And that content can then get broadcasted to anybody who's listening and they can be there while we're doing it. And we won't see them, but they're actually be in the room in VR. Like they're like NPCs kind of around us, but they can be viewers and they can literally start to like purchase, resegment, curate the important conversations that happen to us as we're living life in a metaverse. That's what podcasting will be. I like it. 10 years. We'll be here. Dude, I so I was on a podcast on Friday and I knew he had a kid and he started talking to me about VR. And I was like, whoa, like the current generation of children grew up on YouTube. Right. The next generation are going to grow up building castles in a sky. Like they're going to have the idea of like, oh, they're at five. They build this crazy Pokemon world and then they run data through it. Like they're going to be so much more systems built and creative than us because like what the tools that the like, have you spent any time in rec room or in like these VRs? Not rec room, but I've used Oculus a few times. The tools that they give you to create from the get, like you don't have to worry about physics anymore. You don't have to worry about having an engineering degree, a ton of money. Like you can just go out and create and like having five-year-olds start in that versus just a flat screen YouTube, like advertise based like algorithm like designing their brain in the way they think it's going to be insane yeah i i played original nintendo as my first uh, heck yeah yeah yeah, same yeah i'm I'm still in like the the single screen world yeah flat um i'm like committing right now to start to be in vr like at least 10 hours a week wow like i think i think it's so important i think it's so important yeah awesome uh, one thing I wanted to close with. Uh, so you did this amazing podcast on uh, Bucky Fuller. Mm-hmm. What what does he mean to you? And like, what can he teach us about this moment? So uh, one thing that we've been doing a lot as a species is going towards hyper specialization. And one thing Bucky really pushes against, and like you know, coming from a liberal arts education, tend to push against is like. And I've always loved this idea, even when I was a little kid. Very drawn to it. Like similar to China was this idea of the Renaissance man. Of actually being able to, you know, build a pencil, like being able to do do all the things, and even you know, solo for five years without like hiring other people, really. So you've done that, right? Like you've had to wear all of the hats. But I think there's something really important to that. Uh, Nassim Taleb talks about. It. He's like never get an assistant, like hire people for specific jobs, but never get an assistant. And, like the super rich, famous people I know, there's a very, 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 very different type of person between someone who has an assistant and who doesn't, and like. I don't know why we've talked about it a lot, but Rogan, for example, doesn't like my friends who've gone on his podcast. Like he's had to take bank calls to like get stuff figured out for his wife. Like there. Well, I think once you hire and this is something um, I've been thinking about and you start abstracting away yes. the work you're doing. hundred percent. It's just like the specialization, the problem with jobs, like you're in this very hyper specific thing. Mm-hmm. And you start abstracting away these tasks and then you start pushing stuff off you wouldn't normally do yep. to an assistant. Yep. Um, and that's where you sort of lose yourself. And 100%. then you just become an object in this larger game. Yeah. And you don't understand that friction still exists in the universe. Yeah. These things became frictionless for you. You start doing more than a human can do. Yeah. And leisuring way harder. And then, yeah. 
Uh, and I'm not saying like getting a virtual assistant to help you with your job isn't that's totally good. It's more like the people who pick up your food, book your flights, take your dog out, that kind of shit. Oh, wait, can I answer the Bucky thing? Sorry. So to come back to that. So Bucky, Bucky's whole thing is the reason why that's important is because his whole thing is like you should try to learn as much as possible. So he's this letter to 10 year old wrote him a letter and they said, like, what should I do with my life? And he basically said two rules. The first rule was every time you see a new word, write it five times in a sentence. And the reason is because words are the fundamental tools of humans. And once you learn how to use something, you won't forget it. And the second thing he is, is he says, is like, find a problem in the universe that nobody else is working and you are uniquely positioned to solve and spend all of your time trying to solve it. Do those two thing, two things and you'll live a good life. I love that second part. Yeah. And you, it, I think you're uniquely positioned to channel your optimism and energy into this uh, advertising media problem. So I'm rooting for you. Where Thank can you, people bro. learn more about what you're working on if you want people to find you or not? If you are uh, of the Web3 type, you can listen to all my podcasts for free as NFTs. That's where most people listen. Uh, it's on the Remark Marketplace uh, until we actually build Stoa. So How do you spell that? rmrk.app. So okay. if you go, yeah, rmrk.app and just search Sky King, I'll come up. Uh, we were actually one of like the biggest collections on Remark for 2021, which was cool. Wow. I think it was like number 40, which is pretty crazy. Um, and then if you just, if you do want to subscribe though to the podcast, it's all behind a paywall. So it's skmp.supercast.com. There's free trials and stuff. But again, like we're not going to be, Facebook with Patreon. So subscription isn't the answer, but it's the best thing we have for now. Uh, just, you know, value your time. Subscribe. Awesome. Oh, thanks. and Twitter, Consumer Sky. Awesome. For entertaining content. <laughs> Sweet. Well, thanks for Thank doing you, the first uh, in-person um, relaunch of my Pathless Path podcast. Inspired by uh, what you're doing and uh, keep going. Thank you, man. appreciate you. Thank you for listening to The Pathless Path. I love having these conversations. And if you want to support me, you can rate, review, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow me on YouTube, where I post all the video interviews of this podcast as well. Finally, you can always support me by buying my book, The Pathless Path. It's a book I'm really proud of and has most of my best thinking and probably my best writing in it. And you can get it for less than 20 bucks. So grab that. It's in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can, of course, check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50000 which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.